Many people have noticed that the ring is a fitting symbol of marriage since it is an endless circle with no end. And it represents a never-ending commitment. Where's the, where's the end of a circle, right? And where's the end of a marriage? This is a fitting, natural symbol, one of the other. There are symbols which are fitting in that manner, in that the sign bears some significance to the thing signified. But then there are symbols which are fitting simply because of the memories that that symbol brings to mind, or because of the uniqueness of the context or the situation and the the shared collective history between the two persons doing the signifying. So imagine, for example, a man dies who loves fishing, and one of his friends visits the grave, for example, every year and puts a fishing lure on the grave instead of flowers. It would be a way to pay respect and to signify the affection and the love that you have for your fisherman friend who died in a way that is fitting to the relationship that you had with him, the type of person that he was. There is no inherent reason why that particular symbol of affection should be used in that it's not as if fishing lures are the common standard thing that you would lay on every person's grave, but in that particular case, it might make sense. And so it is a fitting symbol of showing, paying your respects and showing your affection and so on and so forth. In such a case, the symbol is chosen because of the meaning that it carries for that person. It's not that the symbol itself bears any natural relation to the thing signified but it has meaning in that particular context for those particular people. We will move tonight towards exploring the symbolism of the Scarlet Cord in Joshua 2, which I just read for you, which is central to properly understanding the chapter. But first, let us set the scene and explore some other relevant details in the passage, and then circle back around to the Scarlet Cord. So I would remind you many years ago, the people of Israel were in Egypt crying out to God. And they were there for several generations crying out. And and young men became old men and then were gathered to their people. And the next generation grew and continued to cry out to the Lord. And those young men became old men and were gathered to their people and so forth. But then we read in Exodus that God in His due time, according to His sovereign providence and decree, at the appointed time when the sins of the Amorites had reached their full completion and when the people of Israel had gone through that which God intended for them to go through in Egypt, waiting long for the deliverance that God would send, God heard their cries and He sent someone to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. And you may remember that the manner in which the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Why do I say you may remember? Of course you remember. The manner in which the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt was to plague the Egyptians. And there were how many plagues? Ten plagues, right? And the the consummate final plague was the killing of the firstborn. Remember that? And 
what would spare the people of Israel and the people of Egypt from the killing of the firstborn? It was, it was to mark the doorposts or the entryways to their home with the blood of the Lamb. And don't forget this. Though it ended up being only the firstborn of the Egyptians who were struck down, the instruction was that the angel of death would pass through the entire land of Egypt, including Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And whoever did not have the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts, into that home, the angel of death would go and strike down the firstborn. Now, don't miss the fact also that the provision of the way of escape was proclaimed not only in the land of Goshen, but in the rest of the land of Egypt to the Egyptians as well as to the Israelites. So listen here. The Egyptians who would mark their doors with the blood of the Lamb would be spared. And the Israelites who would not mark their doors with the blood of the Lamb would have the angel of death come in and kill the firstborn. So the message here is not that the Israelites were innocent and the Egyptians were guilty. The message here is that the angel of death was coming through as no respecter of persons to deal out this plague, this judgment, upon Egyptians and Israelites alike. But God made this provision that whoever believed the word of the Lord could hide themselves in their house behind the blood of the Lamb. And that the Lamb would die in the place of the firstborn of that household. This was the first Passover. And on this night there was great wailing in Egypt as the angel of death passed through. And the Egyptians by and large were unbelieving and neglected this method of salvation and deliverance from the angel of death which had been proclaimed. We do read, as I pointed out to you when we were back in that section, that a mixed multitude came up out of Egypt. Which means that there were Israelites and non-Israelites who came up out of Egypt. Which is a hopeful indicator that it wasn't only Israelites actually who were saved, but that some of the Egyptians defected from Ra and the other Egyptian gods and left Egypt with the Israelites. So it's possible that some of those either repented at the final plague and when the angel of death killed their firstborn they turned and took shelter in the arms of Yahweh or it's possible that they simply by that time believed the word of the Lord through Moses that whatever God had said would come to pass was in fact going to come to pass. And just like the hail and the blood and the darkness and the gnats and everything had come before, by that time these people were like, we believe. Right? And they, they marked the, the doorpost. See? We don't know exactly all these details. But it was, this, it was this night that Pharaoh said, ah, out of Egypt. And the people of Israel left that night. That was the night of their deliverance. Their sparing. Their rescue. And they left Egypt to follow God on an unknown journey to the land that He had promised. And they believed that going with God 
and going with God's people was better for them than to stay in the land of Egypt. So up they went and they left. But Pharaoh soon changed his mind and you know the story. They were camped by the Red Sea and all of a sudden on the horizon they see the armies of Egypt coming out against them. People say, oh, you brought us out here to die. (laughs) You know how it is. But what did God do? He parted the Red Sea and led the people of Israel through on dry ground. Eventually, the people of Israel came to the borders of the land of Canaan, which was the land promised to them. And they sent 12 spies in. Do you remember what happened? 10 spies came back and said, the land is indeed good, but there's giants there. We're not able to overcome them. We can't go in. But there were two. And who were the two? Joshua and Caleb, who said, the Lord is able to give us this land. Let's go in. Well, the people of Israel listened to the ten instead of the two. And so the Lord said, everyone from this generation is going to die in the wilderness. Y'all are going to go wander again for a while. The only two that are going to survive is Caleb and Joshua, who is now, at this point in history, 40 years later, after that previous generation died out, Joshua is one of two old men in Israel, along with Caleb. And Joshua is at the helm. And Joshua now sends two spies into the land of Egypt. Or sorry, into the land of Canaan. Now, do you think that he would have chosen impious men who would come back and say, the land is indeed good, but we are not able to overcome it because of the giants in the land? Look, you can be, you can be sure Joshua handpicked these fellas. After Joshua had had that frustrating experience of having been a spy himself 40 years ago and seeing how the people listened to a, to a bad report from the ten spies about how they weren't able to go in. You can bet Joshua picked men of faith, men of integrity, who loved Yahweh, who were devoted to Yahweh, who believed the promises of Yahweh, that they could go into the land, and so on and so forth. And Joshua sent these guys. Now these guys come to Jericho, which was a walled, fortified city, and they go in, then they go to the house of this prostitute, Rahab. Presumably, I think this was a cover because these guys were pious men. These guys were, would have been, by very logical deduction, godly men that really loved Yahweh and believed the promises of Yahweh. So I don't think that they were visiting her for the standard reason that one might visit such a place, but rather it, was, it would have been ordinary and customary and not really raised too many eyebrows for traveling men to visit the house of a prostitute. And so in, into Rahab's house they go. But, lo and behold, their cover is not quite as airtight as they thought it might be. And the king of Jericho gets wind that there are spies from the Israelites here, and that they've gone into the house of Rahab. It becomes known that these men have gone in to Rahab's house. This leads us very naturally to the protagonist of this story tonight, Rahab, and the dilemma that she faced. We know that she had heard the legend and the lore 
of what Yahweh has done with the Israelite people. I know that the Lord has given you land, she says in verse 8, and that the fear of you and the, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Remember, Og was, was that guy with like a 13-foot bed, a 13-foot-long iron bed, right? And this thing was like 6 feet wide, 13 feet long. Og was, Og was one of the giants that resided in this area. Presumably, he was a very powerful king. People felt that his land was pretty secure under his rule. And most likely he wasn't the only giant, but that there were, there were other men of similar genetic composition who resided in his territory. And so when the Israelites came in and defeated Og, all of a sudden the inhabitants of surrounding nations were like, whoa, alright, we got to take note of these Israelites because this is a pretty serious threat to us. And so everybody's heart is fading away and melting away because of the Israelites. And then she goes on and she says at the end of verse 11, For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She recognizes, as well as many of the people in, in her city, in Jericho, recognize that God is not some localized deity, but God, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's actually very, very fascinating. Some of the commentaries make much of uh, the way that particular plagues each target one of the Egyptian deities. You know, and so there's a god of the water, and God Yahweh turns the water to blood, and apparently the Egyptian god can't stop him, and so on and so forth. And when we read about the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea, we read that the Egyptians were passing through behind the Israelites at night. And then you know what it says? Just as the sun was rising, the water came crashing down upon Pharaoh and his army. Well, you know who the most powerful god of the Egyptians was? It was Ra, the sun god. So just as the Egyptians might think, ah, things are favorable for us now, our god rises in the east. We have the Israelites. Look, they're on foot, we're on chariots, and now our God rises in the east. Boom. Right at that moment, Yahweh collapses the walls of water on either side, showing that Ra can't do nothing against the people of Israel. So, the people of Jericho have come to realize that Yahweh is no localized God. Yahweh is not just like the God of the rivers and the streams. God is not just the God of the sun or the moon or God is not the God of the stars or God is not the God of, you know, September or April or June or whatever. God is not the God of the Arabian Peninsula and not the rest of... God is God of the heavens above and of the earth beneath, which is demonstrated by the fact that He overcomes not only the Egyptians, but now in a totally different territory, the Amorites, Sihon and Og, 
and their gods can't stop Yahweh and His people from advancing. And so Rahab has this sense of awe and reverence for the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. But now there are messengers from the king of Jericho knocking on her door. Saying, turn over to us the spies that have come to you. And so now she faces this dilemma. What do I do? Do I save my neck and turn these spies over to the king of Jericho, which would be to side with the king of Jericho? It would be also to side with the gods of Jericho against Yahweh, the God who is God of the heavens above and of the earth beneath? Or does she take a gamble here and side with Yahweh and the people of Yahweh and express solidarity with them, which renders her liable to the displeasure and judgment of the king of Jericho if indeed she can't get away with this ruse. So Rahab is in this dilemma here. And she's brought to a fork in the road. She's brought to a decision point. She can't, she can't both side with the people of Yahweh and side with the king of Jericho in this moment. She has to do one or the other. She's not allowed to, let, to, to sit on the fence. God is bringing her to a decision point. She needs to think through questions like this then. What kind of God is Yahweh? Is Yahweh the kind of God who will take non-Israelites into His everlasting arms? Remember we just read, Moses just spoke his final words, right? To the people of Israel. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Can the everlasting arms be under Rahab and her family also? Or is Yahweh a God of these people and not those people? Will God accept non-Israelites into His everlasting arms? What about the undeserving? After all, Rahab is a prostitute. How will Yahweh relate to sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore? Should she tarry till she's ready? Should her conscience make her linger? Wondering if Yahweh will accept such a one as her? Well, Rahab decides to take a chance on Yahweh, so to speak. She misleads the authorities and appeals to the Israelite men for refuge under the wings of Yahweh. She takes the men up onto the rooftop and hides them with long stalks of flax which was a crop that she had harvested. I don't know exactly what flax looks like, but I'm imagining long bundles. And if these guys lay down, she can cover them with some long bundles. Something like this. This is the way it was put to me in the flannel graphs in Sunday school. I mean, the flannel graphs can't be wrong. (laughs) So this is how I've always conceived it, all right? So she hides them under the stalks of flax on the roof. And she tells the guys, the soldiers who have come to her house from the king of Jericho. It's true, they did come here, but they left already. Okay? We've, we've had our 
visit with one another and now these men have left. They've gone on their way. So hurry, you might catch them. Go, quick. So these guys dutifully run off in pursuit of the Israelite men. And there's a little bit of breathing room. So she goes up then to have a conversation with these guys. And this is the first that we hear of Rahab's internal deliberations. Is actually after she's already taken a chance on Yahweh by hiding these guys and misleading the Jericho authorities. This is when she has a little heart to heart with them. She says that whole thing of like, we've heard of your God. We've heard of his exploits. We've heard of his deeds. We're all really terrified. She says in verse 12, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And she says this, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my mother, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Give me a sign that when you pass through this city as instruments of judgment to kill, to annihilate, give me a sign that my family and I will be passed over. Give me a sign. Because we are so afraid of what your God will do to us. I want to appeal to the kindness of Yahweh. I want to appeal to the mercy of Yahweh. I want to appeal to the grace of Yahweh. Our life for yours, even to death, the men reply. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And these guys, these guys go hide out somewhere until the pursuers come back, and then they return back to the camp of Israel. But what was the sign that they left her with? That her and her household would be passed over when the people of Israel come through the land to destroy to kill. They say in verse 18, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your mother and father, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if any hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. Verse 21, she's, according to your words, she says, so be it. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Listen, when these guys thought about a, a sign, what would be the sign? Remember, these were pious guys. There's, no, there's just no way that Joshua would just pick two random guys or just ask for volunteers. There's no way. After wandering around 40 years in the wilderness because of spies who didn't trust Yahweh and brought a report that there's no way they'd be able to go into the land. There's just no way. 
that Joshua would have sent impious, untrusting, unbelieving guys to spy out this land. These were men who loved Yahweh. These were men who worshipped Yahweh. These were men who trusted Yahweh. These were men who believed the, the promises of Yahweh. Which means they had been brought up most likely from their mother's knee hearing the stories of Abraham of Isaac and of Jacob and of all the promises that God had made to the people of Israel and they would have heard the stories about the parting of the Red Sea and of the water from the rock and so on and so forth which would have happened either when these guys were infants and toddlers or perhaps even before they were born and they would have heard the stories of the Passover. And so when she asks them for a sign, and they give her a scarlet cord to put at the exit point of her house, at the window through which she let them out, it's, they didn't tell her, look, go kill a lamb and sprinkle his blood. But the, the, the scarlet color clearly is the color of blood, right? And putting it at this exit point where they had gone in and out of the house, marking the doorway, marking the entry there. It's like, we will not go in past this blood of the Lamb, as it were. You take shelter behind this blood of the Lamb, represented, of course, not literally blood of the Lamb, but represented by the scarlet cord. This will be a sign that when we pass through to destroy, and remember the Israelites were instruments of God's judgment, because it was when the sins of the Amorites were complete that God gave them this land. And He told them, as we looked at a couple of months ago, He told them to annihilate, to exterminate. This was men and women, boys and girls, the aged, the young, children, babies. They were, in a sense, angels of death to pass through the land of Canaan. They were instruments of God's wrath and God's judgment for the wickedness of these nations. And the sign that they give her that her house shall be passed over is red to put on the doorways. Listen, that's no coincidence. That's like a fisherman who dies and his fisherman buddies come and put a fishing lure by his grave. It's significant to them. When you, when you think about the mindset of these guys and the fittingness of the symbol given the context, there's a clear correspondence here to the Passover. In Joshua 2, the scarlet cord is a symbol drawn from the Passover. Whether Israelites, whether Egyptians, whether Canaanites or whoever in this, in this earth. All are guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. No matter what your nationality, no matter your upbringing, there's no people group that gets passed over just because they belong to a certain people group. There is wrath hanging over this world, which God, for which God has appointed a time as He appointed 
that night of bloodshed in Egypt. But leading up to that appointed time, God has said that there is a way to be passed over. And the way to be passed over is to take shelter behind the blood of the Lamb. The Passover itself was paradigmatic for us. It was a visual picture. It was a real historical event, but it was also a a picture of something greater and better and bigger. It was a real historical event, but it was also symbolic of something else. We recognize much later the correspondence when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We recognize the correspondence so many years later when Jesus is crucified on the occasion of the Passover festival. We recognize John wants us to see it very clearly when he writes in his uh, gospel account that uh, it was a hyssop branch that they extended up to Jesus on the cross because it was a hyssop branch which applied the blood to the doorposts. And he's drawing on this specific language to remind us of the connection here. These guys get that. These spies understand that. That the wrath of God is upon not only Canaan, not only Egypt, but also Israel. But also that the mercy of God is proclaimed not only to Israel, but also to Egypt, and also to Canaan, and in fact, to the ends of the earth. And so, there is a way for even Egyptians to be passed over. There is a way even for Canaanites to be passed over, but it is the same way as for Israelites to be passed over, which is to take shelter behind the blood of the Lamb. Now, interestingly, we see here that Rahab says that her and all her people, all their hearts are melting. She says that they've all heard the stories. She says that they've all heard of the glorious deeds of Yahweh, the parting of the Red Sea and whatnot. But as far as we are told in Scripture, there was one household that was spared, which was Rahab's. Listen, the defining thing is not whether you ever heard of the deeds of Yahweh. The defining thing is not whether you ever heard of the impending wrath, the destined day of bloodshed. The defining thing isn't whether you ever heard that you can apply the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts. The defining thing isn't whether you ever heard that you could hang a scarlet cord from the window. The defining thing is who you line up with, whether the king of Jericho or the Pharaoh on the one hand, or Yahweh on the other. Whether you avail yourself of the means of being passed over and apply that blood to the lintel of the doorpost of your home or hang that scarlet cord or in simpler terms, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't matter whether you heard all the legends and whether you have feelings. You go to church and you think, wow, sin is so bad, sin is so terrible. Oh, there is a gospel. It doesn't matter whether you know that. It matters how you respond to that. 
And apparently Rahab and her household heard the same things that everyone else heard, but there was a different response. And Rahab took her chance to say, maybe Yahweh's everlasting arms will carry me too. Let me throw myself upon the mercy of Yahweh. Let me turn from my kinsmen. Let me turn from my countrymen. Let me turn from my worldly temporal securities. Let me throw myself at the mercy of Yahweh. And let's see what happens. And it turned out that when she jumped, so to speak, or did her trust fall, so to speak, that the everlasting arms of Yahweh were there to catch him. And if you are to jump, if you are to do a trust fall, so to speak, into the arms of Yahweh and say, perhaps he will pass over me too. I need that mercy. I need that grace. You'll find that the everlasting arms of Yahweh will likewise catch you. The Passover, the conquest of Jericho with the passing over of Rahab and her household because of the scarlet cord, these are showing us that whoever trusts in the mercy of Yahweh avails himself of the means of being passed over, which is to apply that blood or the symbol of that blood over yourself. Those persons will be passed over. Yahweh is gracious. This is the meaning of Joshua chapter 2. It is gospel right here in the Old Testament. Right there for us to see. So let us be like Rahab who have no righteousness of our own to cling to or not upstanding citizens but recognize the greatness and the glory of Yahweh and His willingness to extend mercy and grace and to spare and to save the needy.